You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, once again, good morning to all of you. It's great to see you. Some of you are awake. I heard that. That's good. But also, some of you are our guests, and we want to extend a special welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here with us. And uh, after the service, we do something called Next Steps, which is in our cafe around the corner, and just a chance for some of us to get to meet you and welcome you here. We hope that you can, you can take advantage of that. So we have been in a series on the Gospel of John, and this week we jump ahead to John chapter 4. We were in John chapter 3 last week. We will go back to it next week, but we're going to jump to John chapter 4. But um, as we do so, I want to go back to next week, just last week rather, just for a minute. And that was, I wasn't feeling so well last week. And so many of you, you've been so gracious and so kind, you know, to ask how I'm doing. I'm doing much better. Um, That's not the weight loss plan I would recommend. But I'm feeling much, much better now. And I'm grateful, grateful for that. And I'll, I'll try to help connect the dots around my line of thinking because sometimes I can be a little scary to myself with where my mind goes. But I was thinking about, you know, in 17 years, that is the first time that I've been nauseous about to go up and preach a sermon, which I'm really grateful for. I've been sick. You know, I've had colds and the tail end of flu and, you know, better living through pharmaceuticals in those in those occasions. But otherwise, I, I haven't had to deal with that before. But the last time, really, I was truly sick was in 2016. Um, you had graciously sent Jamie and me to um, Israel, which was a life-changing experience for me, by the way. And on our way back, we brought swine flu with us. And it was horrible. You know, a 15-hour flight with swine flu. I felt so bad for my wife because she got it first. And, and I thought, oh, no, it's coming for me. And it did. And so anyway, I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about Israel. And then I was thinking about the setting with where our, our, our passage today takes place. And I've been there. I have sights and sounds and smells that go along with what we're going to read today. And I was just reminded of what it was like to be in Israel. And again, life-changing experience, but a very unique experience for those of you who have ever gone. Um, It's difficult to describe what it's like when you get off a plane, and instead of police officers, you see soldiers with automatic weapons. And that's how it is everywhere in Israel. And I'll never forget going up on the Golan Heights, which was one of the places, one of the sites at the start of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, where Israel got invaded and the Syrians surged across the border there in all these tanks. And um, all that being said, one of those tanks from the war was deliberately left there. And so in this overlook of that area, you go to that and you drive right by this tank and it was left there as a reminder of their past and the sacrifice of those who who died defending their freedom and their country. But you go to this overlook and you overlook this kind of neutral ground and then you overlook Syria. You're literally looking into the country of Syria. And I remember pulling up in our tour bus and we get off about 30 or 40 of us and there's already an Israeli family there having a picnic or whatever. We get off the bus, we get out, our tour guide begins to, you know, tell us some of the history and what's going on and all of a sudden, Some soldiers drive up in a Jeep, all with automatic weapons, and they get out and they just kind of fan out around us to protect us. And we're very much noticing this and ask the tour guide, what's that about? And she says, well, down there is an area you just, you don't want to go there and they just want to give you additional protection because it's kind of a neutral zone between us, us and Syria. 
And so what I begin to realize as we journeyed throughout the country is there are fences and there are walls around different areas of the country, um, Palestinian-controlled areas, Israeli-controlled areas, and it's just understood that there are certain places that you do not want to go. It is the wrong side of the tracks. It's dangerous. You, so you don't cross those ethnic, racial, cultural, geographical lines. Everybody kind of knows you stick to your own, your own area, your own tribe, your own people. But Jesus in this passage today will obliterate all of that. He will go to the wrong side of the tracks. He will go to an area that no self-respecting Jew really would ever go, and he will go purposefully to change a woman's life forever. It is the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, which is familiar to many of you, and that's where we are here today. But before we dive into this passage, the gospel writer, John, deliberately puts where we were at last week with Nicodemus and the woman at the well in contrast to one another. And I just thought it would be kind of fun to just see how he deliberately contrasts the two. So Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. So last week, Nicodemus, John chapter three. Well, he's a dude, he's male, she's female. Okay, we get that. He's Jewish, she's Samaritan. We'll get into the significance of that in just a little bit. He has a name, she's nameless. She's never named in this story. She's just the woman at the well. He is the consummate religious insider, and she is the consummate religious outsider, really, the irreligious outsider. He comes at night, she comes at noon, and we'll look at the significance of that. He's powerful, she's powerless. He has it all together, seemingly. Her life is broken. By his people's standards, he's clean. He is clean. By his people's standards, she is not. She is unclean. He is connected, she is disconnected. He says less, she says a lot, and he reconsiders when Jesus challenges him, but she responds when Jesus challenges him. And that's where we're gonna go. And I hope that you'll find as I do, this isn't just a story. This is my story, and it's your story. And I wanna pray that God would help us see it as such. Lord, again, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make this story come alive to us. You say that your word is living and active, and we pray that it would sure be that way for us this morning. Help us to see ourselves in this story, to understand what it means, and to realize what it means for each one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we dive into this passage, it's a rather long one, um, I want us to make a pact. I want us to make an agreement, okay? We don't have time to go through this, this whole beautiful story in its entirety. It's 42 verses long. We're just going to focus on the first 26, but this is our pact. You need to promise me, pinky promise, that sometime today or tomorrow or later this week, you will read the rest of this passage to get the rest of the story. But this is what we're going to look at for now. So now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now we had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? 
and his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw it itself, come here to draw itself. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Oh, it's just awesome. It's such an amazing story. There's only 20 sermons in here, so we'll be done about Wednesday. So hope you know, make yourself comfortable, relax. I mean, just what a beautiful, powerful passage loaded for us. So let's just begin to peel back some of the layers. It tells us that Jesus was really beginning to gather unwanted attention, that the Pharisees were learning that his disciples were, were baptizing and he was gaining a larger following than, than John. And he wasn't ready to attract that kind of attention to himself. So he leaves Judea and goes to Galilee. And it tells us that he had to go through Samaria. Yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, what most Jews of the time would cross, did was they would cross the Jordan River to the other side and go around Samaria. What Jesus did here in this one statement is all kinds of wrong. And yet it is absolutely right. So let's do business with this because it's really important for us to understand this story. It's a really important lens for us to understand this story through. So ge geographically, geography. If you want to go north-south in Israel, you have to go through Samaria. It's the shortest distance between point A and point B. But the Jews wouldn't do that because, as we heard from the passage, they don't associate with Samaritans. So this would be like you or I wanting to go to, let's say, the Rose Garden. And from here, the most expeditious, quickest way to the Rose Garden, barring traffic, is I-84, right? You just go through that part of Portland, Rose Garden. Well, 
we're from East County. We don't associate with people from that part of Portland. So what we do then <laughs> is we drive all the way to Marine Drive, go out Marine Drive, hit I-5, go down I-5 South, and then we go to the Rose Garden. Is it the shortest distance? No. But is it the best distance for us? Absolutely, because we don't have to associate with, with them. So for Jesus to go to Samaria just geographically was huge. Jews didn't do that. And the reasonable question is, well, why? And there's history here that we need to understand. In 722 BC, because of Solomon's sin, Israel was separated into two kingdoms. It had broken apart. There was the north and the south. In 722 BC, the Assyrians, the first major world superpower, swept down into the Near East and they obliterated the northern kingdom. And they did something that, that entities after them, like the Babylonians and others, would also do. But really, the Assyrians were the first one to pilot and perfect this. When they conquered an area, once they defeated an area, they would then deport a majority of the population to another part of the empire and they would bring into that area their people to just keep things the way they needed to be. And so most of the northern empire of, of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, who survived that war were deported to another part of the ancient Near East. And in return, the Assyrians brought in their own people. So for the Jews who were left in that area, they began to intermarry as the generations and time went on. And because of that, um, the Jews regarded them as half-breeds, apostates, because with these folks who got resettled by the Assyrians came all these pagan religions and weird practices. And, and so the Samaritans then, as they became, began to combine those with Jewish beliefs. And so it got to the point where the Samaritans only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, which we know as the Pentateuch. And so therefore, they disregarded all the rest of the Old Testament. So they really didn't understand who the Messiah was or what Messiah was truly about. And that's why Jesus referenced that. Was they, they, just, they knew Messiah was coming, but that was about it. They, they, they really didn't know much beyond that. And to make matters worse, because the Jews looked down their noses at the Samaritans, the Samaritans decided, okay, if you're too good for us, we're too good for you. We're going to build our own temple on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and we're going to worship God here. And by the way, this is the only true proper place to worship God. And so that created animosity. So some 200 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, the Jews came into Samaria and destroyed the Samaritans temple. That went over really well. A hundred years later, the Sumerians desecrated the Jewish temple by scattering dead bones everywhere. So there, there was this back and forth, and there was 500 years of animosity between these two people groups. They did not like each other. They did not associate together. And so, for a Jew to travel through Samaria was just mostly unheard of, quite honestly, for a Jewish rabbi of Jesus' stature, as some regarded him, was absolutely un unheard of. And so, if we want to get a modern feel for this, Samaria is now known as the West Bank in Israel. Constant conflict and tension between the, the Jews and largely the Palestinians of the West Bank even today. So you're talking about animosity and difficulty that goes back 
hundreds, really, at this point, thousands of years. And yet, where does Jesus go? To Samaria. And it says he had to go to Samaria. And he did. Because of his mission, he goes seeking this woman. And so she comes to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. And you just, you got to imagine as we enter the story here, what could she have been thinking? And I, I wish we could have been a fly on the wall or a fly on the well, whatever you want to call it, right? To see, to hear tone and to see all this unfold in front of us and just to see the layers for ourselves. But I just wonder, if Jews never talk to Samaritan, why is Jesus talking to her? Who is this guy? What is his agenda? Is he hitting on me? I mean, what Really? What was going through her mind? And we don't know. But this is what we do know. We know what happened next. They have this exchange. And she says, how in the world can you be talking to me? And by the way, it was about noon. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And so Jesus offers her this, this living water. And, and it's, it's remarkable. Because again, in that frame of reference, and we looked at this last week, in an arid dry climate, like much of the ancient Near East is, water's everything. Water's life. To have a well was huge, hugely important. That well had been serving that community for literally thousands of years. It was precious. It was vital. But if you had a spring, if you owned land with a spring, that was considered invaluable. I mean, that was like amazing. And so Jesus is offering her a free spring. I mean, that's, that's got to be how she's hearing some of this. So, of course, she, she wants that. And so she asks, you know, how are you going to get this water? And once again, I have found my people. I found my people with Nicodemus last week. I found my people now with the woman at the well. Because both of them, as they're trying to make sense out of this, are being so literal and concrete. I told you a story for those of you who are here about last week about how literal, unfortunately, I can be. And I can just, I can miss things because I'm so concrete. I have a brand new example for you. <laughs> this last week, I'll spare you the details, but we have to give our cat this medication now twice a day, every day for the rest of his life. And to make him eat it, we put it in pumpkin. Yeah, again, don't ask. So we put this pill in pumpkin and my, my, my Jamie says, hey, will you, will you, pill the cat. Sure, I'll take care of him. So I get the pill and I put it in pumpkin. And at the point that I get this, I'm standing over our, our mat in our kitchen. It's cloth. And she says, oh, just do it on the floor. So what did I do? Now, most reasonable people would move and then feed the cat over the floor. I, in my brain, was literal and said, on the floor. Oh, I put the pumpkin on the floor. And so the cat came and ate it. It all worked out. But a little too literal there. That, that wasn't exactly what was being asked. And when we read this, it looks like I, he's not talking about getting water out of that well. He's talking about a spring of living water. So how can it come from them? But in fairness to her and in fairness to Nicodemus last week, he is deconstructing deliberately her understanding of God. And, and he's blown her mind. And to her credit, she's, she's trying to catch up with what's going on here. And she's about to find out that Jacob's well cannot hold a candle to Jesus' well. 
And so she begins to understand that she wants this wherever it is. And she asks for it. Man, give it to me so I don't have to keep coming here to draw water. In preaching team this last week, and Gabester's in the back there, but Gabe at our preaching team was telling us, you know, you guys know I grew up in South America and there was a season in my life when I was young where we lived in a community where we had to go draw water from the well. And that, that's how we got our water. And it was consuming. It's, it's what you did. And people would do it at the beginning and the end of each day to avoid the heat of the day. Not necessarily in South America, but especially here. And when does this lady come? At noon, when no one else comes to the well. Why, why is that? Because of what surfaces next. Jesus says, go call your husband and come back, which would have been a socially appropriate thing for her to do. And he knows what she's about to say, but she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. The reason this woman came to the well at noon when no one else came was she was an outcast. She was ostracized by her lifestyle and her choices by her very community because the well was really a community hub. Usually in those cultures, women, sometimes children, would come and draw water, just like it is still true around communities in the world today, while the men were off doing their trade or working or whatever. And so it's where you met people. It's where you talked. It's where you had community. It's where you had relationship. No one wants to be with this woman. So she has to come at the hottest part of the day in order to just get water. And it's because of this. And actually, this still goes on in our culture today. Not wells and water from that. But this life choice. Why has she had five husbands? And why is she living with a man who's not her husband? She's looking for something, isn't she? She's looking for an intimacy that she's not finding. You see, our broken culture says that if you really want to find the deepest intimacy that you're looking for, you need to sexualize whatever relationship you're in. So we have people living together and friends with benefits. And I mean, just think of it this way. God created sex for one man and one woman as husband and wife in a covenant relationship for life. And every other expression of that sexuality is broken and will leave you wanting more or being unsatisfied or unfulfilled. It was true then. It's, it's, it's true now. She's looking for something. And Jesus exposes her sinfulness, her, her brokenness. And we can look at this and say, well, why does he do that? He's shaming her. No, he's actually not. He's doing exactly the opposite. He is inviting her to find freedom and healing and hope and to give her life by bringing this proverbially into the light. And look how she responds. She knows that he has not been talking to the town gossips. There's no way he could know what he knows. There, there's something significantly different about this man. And she says, maybe he's, maybe he's a prophet, but clearly something's going on here. 
But what's beautiful to me about this is her courage. You see, I've, I've been married to Jamie for 30 years. We've been together for 36. I've told you, she's my best friend. I love her. I trust her. But there are those times, and I know this is really going to be hard to believe, but it's true. There are those times when I sin or I'm selfish, and she calls me on it, necessarily so, and I don't like it. I resist it. I run from it. I'm hesitant to acknowledge it, or I'm just outright defensive. And she's safe to me. And we've been together for decades, literally. She's my bride of 30 years. Okay, Jesus has known this woman. They've been lifelong friends for about 10 minutes. And what does she do? Does she attack him? Does she defend herself? Does she denigrate him? Does she deny it? Does she run from it? She owns it. Do you you get that? Do you know how courageous this was for this woman? What, What... What an example to me and to you. Jesus brings her sinfulness into the light and she doesn't run. She she lets him go to work on her heart. And and then some commentators think she's trying to change the, you know, change the subject. And I'm not sure that I buy that. But whatever the case, they begin to talk about worship. And again, he addresses her as woman, and we've seen this before in John chapter 2, in the first miracle Jesus performed, the turning of the water into wine, when his mom asked him to do that, do you remember how he addressed her? Woman. And this isn't, woman! (laughs) And he's not talking to her this way either. We we know that because of how it's written and the context of how Jesus uses it. He'll do this three times in the Gospel of John. Each time, it's a gesture of respect and compassion and concern. And it's very socially appropriate. It's honoring. He honors her and then begins to talk with her about who he is and what's going to happen and about God seeks true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. This is way bigger than we have the right temple and you don't or we're the right people and you're not. It's far, far bigger than that. God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that sounds great. And what does that mean? Well, let's do business with that for just a minute. The question is not if you are a worshiper. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. That's, that's not on the table. Everyone's a worshiper. We're all hardwired to worship, and we worship someone or something. Someone or something gets our allegiance, our time, our resources, our money, our affections. All of us, even the most irreligious person, all that stuff is going somewhere. It's prioritized on something or someone. So the real question isn't, are you a worshiper? The real question is, who or what are you worshiping? And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here, is there is this spiritual reality that we all need to do business with. We see it in this story. We saw it in Nicodemus' story. And it's because it's our story. Every single one of us is thirsty. We are united in our thirst. And because of the existence and presence of sin and sinfulness, selfishness in all of us, 
we have a tendency to take good things in our desire to worship and to make them ultimate things, meaning we will take things like sex and we will look to it for something that it will never deliver to us. That's exactly what this woman was doing. She was going from relationship to relationship, looking for intimacy, giving or having sex, and still not finding what she was looking for. Do people still do that today? Seriously? But it doesn't have to be sex. It can be money. It can be stuff. I mean, you take a good thing, and in our brokenness, we can elevate it to the ultimate thing. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's not the only kind of idolatry, but it's a type of idolatry. Okay, I'm not trying to rub it in. I'm making a point, okay? Honest. But when I was in Hawaii two weeks ago, 86, 88 degrees, you know, gentle wind, tropical smell that you get when you're at any of the Hawaiian islands and in the tropics, warm, people are happy, our, our lanai sets out over the water, you know, the water's warm, you don't get hypothermic when you go in it like our water, it's, you can actually swim in it. And it's just, it's and chocolate macadamia nuts. Did I mention that? It's just, it's just amazing. So I'm sitting on our lanai and, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about, honestly, I'm thinking about this passage to some degree because the Lord was doing business with my heart on some things even then. And, and so I'm thinking about this and, you know, the, the, the warmth and the sun and the happy people. And did I say chocolate macadamia nuts? The chocolate macadamia nuts. And, you know, it's just, it's so perfect. I mean, it was so good. And it wasn't enough. Well, you should have stayed longer. Well, amen. But it still wouldn't have been enough. I mean, you're not there. My family's not there. My life's not there. What if I could pray this really big prayer and uproot all of us and plant us in Hawaii? Yeah, amen. Someone's in. (laughs) It'll be you and me, brother. Be a little lonely, but it'll be us. But no, you know, that, of course not. No. Okay, so it's pretty awesome there. And yet there's still this feeling of something's missing. What's wrong with me? And I know many of you are saying that. What in the world is wrong with you? But in fairness, what's wrong with you? How come your vacations are never long enough? Never frequent enough? You can never quite make enough money. Your relationships can't quite get to where you want them to be. Can't work enough to get what you want. And so it goes. You you fill in the blank. How come we're always looking for more, wanting more, having this feeling of either dissatisfaction or even frustration with as good as things are, they're just not quite what we really want them or need them to be, or the people in our lives are not really what we want them and need them them to be. What's, What's wrong with us? Well, you know. This is far more intuitive than we give it credit for. I know, and you know what it is. It's because you want more. It's because you were created for more. And that's exactly the point. 
There's a thirst that you and I have that will never be quenched by good things. It can only be quenched by one thing, and that's Jesus. So many of us look for needs that only he can meet in a relationship, in stuff, in money, in vacations, in chocolate macadamia nuts. You fill in the blank, but we look for it there, and we're never going to find it. Because you and I have a thirst that can only be quenched through right relationship with Jesus Christ by knowing God. And so you see, as I'm sitting there in Hawaii thinking about all this stuff, I'm realizing, you know what? I can savor this. I can enjoy this. I can be satisfied by this to a point because I have a thirst that's been quenched by the source of living water. And it actually helps me live life. I don't look to good things for more than they can give me, but I sure enjoy them. And that in itself is an act of worship. And now we're beginning to get our heads around what Jesus is talking about here. God's kingdom is here. It has come. The kingdom of God is here. But not yet. And we live in that really weird tension. But it is a reality that Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, has put in motion God's divine rescue plan and everything, including you and me, if we'll respond to him and receive him into our lives as being redeemed and renewed and repaired and prepared for when he comes back. And when he comes back, the kingdom will be completed and everything will be made right. And when God does his amazing makeover of the earth, he won't have much to do in Hawaii. It's pretty close to perfect. But everything will be restored. And my friends, this is hope. It's hope now and hope for the future. Because no matter how bad things are right now, and things can get pretty bad and painful and desperate and difficult, there is the promise that at some point it's going to get better. If not here, then in the life to come. And that reality has sustained Jesus followers like us for thousands and thousands of years because it's real and it's true. And as good as life is right now, as great as it is, it's actually going to get better. And so this is the reality. You have to respond. And some of you who remember last week are saying, hey, that's the same point that you ended with last week. Exactly. Yeah, that was by design. Because Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman as different as those two people are, still the same story and still the same destination. You see, you can respond to this because if you will read on with what happens with the Samaritan woman, she does respond. She practically drops her water jar and runs into the village and tells everybody, come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. And so people begin to come out and we begin to hear about all these people who choose to believe and who choose to change and who choose life and choose to have their thirst finally quenched by the living water that they've been looking for. And the same can be true for you. Do you really think it's a coincidence that you're hearing this this morning? Because Jesus is seeking you just like he did the Samaritan woman. He went out of his way to find her. He goes out of his way to find you and me. The real question is, how will you respond? I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. 
And I'm gonna invite our communion servers to come forward and prepare our elements. We do celebrate communion here this morning. And what I love about communion is it helps us remember all these realities that we're talking about. That we have this God who comes pursuing us, seeking us. It's not that we first love him as his word says. It's that he first loved us. And he offers to quench our deepest thirsts. Thirsts that we in our brokenness will look to other things to quench and that just never seems to quite happen because you and I have a need for right relationship with God which is only achieved, only experienced through knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so as we distribute these elements this morning, this is hopefully by design. We're having you come forward because we want to marry action to you receiving these, these elements. Make this a choice. Make this a decision this morning. That for those of you who know and love Jesus Christ, you're going to be honest with him and honest with you, just like the Samaritan woman was, and put your finger or allow him to put his finger on the areas of your life where you're quenching your thirst in ways that you know you shouldn't. Where you're looking to things in your life for something they can never deliver. Where you're not trusting and obeying him where he's asked you to follow. You call that what it is. And then you accept and claim his forgiveness because that's what he offers. Every day in Jesus Christ for a Jesus follower is a fresh start. Amen? Amen. Then live that. Believe that. As you come forward and receive these elements, hang on to them and take them back to your chair and we will, we will take communion together. And there are some of you who you're just not quite there yet. You're still wrestling with this like Nicodemus did, like the woman did. And that's okay. This is a safe place to do that. And there may be some of you, you recognize, you realize, you know what? I'm, I'm thirsty. And this is what I've been looking for. I want to lead you into an opportunity to just pray and ask God to come into your life. And then when you come receive communion, you're coming as part of his family, which is pretty awesome. So let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for any in this room who are wrestling, struggling with what they've heard. And I pray that they would make the choice to step over from death to life to have their thirst quenched by the true source of living water, by receiving you, Jesus, into their lives, by saying, Jesus, I want to follow you and I want to worship you. And Lord, as we all come forward to receive these elements, remind us of what you have done for us through your death, burial, and resurrection. May we believe you for what you say. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You know, I'm just thinking about the words to that song that we just sang and really what we just ended with. I mean, do, do you realize what we're singing and saying? Bring your failures, bring your addictions. And really? And the answer is yes. That's why we're singing it. It's true. I have a sin addiction apart from Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that addiction shows itself is I look to good things to be more than they really can be. And I just, I lose sight of the fact that it, the thirst that I have, what I'm really looking for, can only be quenched, can only be satisfied by Jesus. And so when you have received Jesus Christ into your life, you have a spirit-empowered, God-empowered choice with how you choose to live at that point. Your addictions, your failures, your past, those no longer have to define you. You are a new person. 
God is going to change you from the inside out. Doesn't mean you won't still do battle with those things, but you're no longer defined by them. And they are no longer who you really are. And this is a journey that we do together. We speak truth and encouragement into one another's lives. And so as we prepare to go from here, as I want to pray blessing over you before we do, we have our prayer teams up here. We would love to pray with you. And if you made that, that defining moment choice to choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, we would love to celebrate that with you. Would you please come tell me or tell the prayer teams, tell the person who came with you because we want to help you begin to grow in this new relationship that you now have. Your life is forever changed. And that's awesome. And that's what our God does. Let me pray his blessing over you. Lord, thank you for each person who's here. Lord, thank you that you offer us freedom and hope and forgiveness. You quench our deepest thirst. You satisfy us in ways in nothing and no one else will ever be able to do so. And Lord, I pray for me and everyone here that we would do business as well with what is our Samaria. You went out of your way to bring this woman into your kingdom. Lord, with the people we know who don't know you, who are searching for you, who are thirsty for you, would you give us opportunity to, to recognize and have those conversations, to serve and to love them because you have first served and loved us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you're with us. Would we not forget that as we go out these doors? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. So go and live for him. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.